Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now imagine if you had an organ that's in your body that you happen to have two of, and when that organ fails, the collective system of both of them, you wind up having a life-threatening condition that could be supported by machines. But the curious thing is that if you had those organs fail and someone donated one of these, you could potentially live a long, healthy life and never even have to look at the consequences of kidney failure or dialysis. So I just gave it away. Today, we're going to be talking about the kidney and not only the kidney. I'm here in the studio with Dr. Kai Yamaguchi. He is a surgeon at Queens Transplant Center specializing in kidney and pancreas transplants. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about why would you do such a thing? Why would you need such a thing? And why we need living kidney donors more than ever before. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Kai. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, Kidneys, we got two of them. If they don't do well, we need to do something because we can't really live without kidneys or some sort of replacement for kidneys like dialysis. So uh, tell me, the what, how would you describe the normal function of a kidney? I tell folks that a kidney is a filter, and it's one of the body's main filters, and we can't live without that. We can live with about 25% of one kidney and stay off of dialysis, but after that point, we require some sort of renal replacement therapy. Because stuff would build up, toxins would build up in your body, things like potassium and things you normally get rid of in when you eliminate, when you urinate, it would all build up in your body. Exactly. Just like the good old-fashioned Brita water filter. That's what our kidneys do. That's a really good descriptive idea, Brita water filter. So you said people can live with 25% of one of their kidney functions or one of them is still working. When we talk about kidneys, so normal kidneys are acting like our filter system. What makes kidneys go bad? By far, the two most common causes of kidney failure are diabetes and hypertension, high blood pressure. We have a higher rate of kidney disease here in the islands than some other places on the mainland. Is it because we have higher rates of diabetes? Is it because we have more people with uncontrolled hypertension? Uh, for sure. It definitely is. And so if you have any of those conditions, if you have diabetes, if you have high blood pressure, kidneys are one of those organs that can be affected by those, but we monitor them frequently. Unfortunately, there aren't that many signs and symptoms of your kidneys going bad until it's very, very late in the game and oftentimes too late to do anything about it. So we do this measurement like a blood test. You might, uh, some people might have gone to their doctor and had them do a quote kidney test and they'll do a blood test looking at your kidney function. There's a measurement called blood urea nitrogen or BUN and another one called creatinine. And those are put into a formula of something called a glomerular filtration rate, a GFR. So most people who have a problem aren't detected early enough to do something about it. Does all kidney disease progress? Or could someone, if they had diabetes, take any kind of medication that might reverse or slow down that process? The better controlled your blood pressure is, the better control your blood sugars are, the longer that your kidneys and the other organs which can be affected by those processes will last. So you really want to get on the blood pressure, you want to get on the sugar, you want to do something about it. Absolutely. 
And we also monitor kidney function if you're diabetic by doing urine testing. We're looking for protein loss in your kidneys. We're basically trying to find out if you've poked holes in the filter. And if so, stuff comes out that shouldn't. So that's a sign for us there's trouble. Right. It's not a specific sign about what's going on. It just tells us that something's wrong. Something's going on. We better figure it out. How can we figure it out? How can we figure out what exactly is going on with the kidneys? The unfortunate truth is with even with biopsy, even looking at kidneys under an electron microscope at times, all we can see is damage. We can't necessarily always tell why. You can see the crime scene. You just can't see what happened. Exactly. And we can try and play detectives and figure it out. But sometimes we may not be able to see it in action. You know, sometimes I think that biopsies and scans and things, they show us the anatomical picture of organs. They don't necessarily give us the same information about the organ's function. So a functional study is something that's often very helpful. But with the kidneys, one of the only functional studies you can do is kind of look at what happens when your kidneys work well. Look at the urine. Do testing on that. That is probably that combination of the anatomical appearance and also the functional effect of that that organ that really gives us most of the information. But it's hard to try and figure that out. Uh, it certainly is because most of the causes of kidney disease, when you look at the kidneys microscopically or even macroscopically on imaging, they really look the same. It looks good. It's just not working. <laughs> exactly. So you do surgery and you actually do kidney transplants and pancreas transplants. Correct. So let's talk about the kidney. How do you do it? I'm curious. Just like hooking up a filter to your faucet, it's the same type of hookups. You need something to get the fluid in, which is an artery in this case. The the fluid gets cleaned in that filter of the kidney. You need something to get the clean fluid out, which is a vein. And then you need something to do with the waste, which is urine. So that urine tube or ureter is the third hookup. And largely those three hookups are what are involved in a kidney transplant. Now, when you put in a new kidney, where do you put it? Uh, we actually put the new kidney uh, in front in the pelvis, almost in the crook of the hip, uh, hip bone. How come? Because that's a nice, convenient spot to put it that gives you access to all three of those hookups. Ah. Your native kidneys are high up by your back, and it, they're in a relatively inaccessible and protected location by design, I'm sure, but it makes it awfully difficult to put something back there. And making an incision just over your pubic bone to just inside your hip bone, we get to scoot aside the intestines, and it gives us access to a very big artery called the iliac artery, a very big vein called the iliac vein, and it's also very close to the bladder so that we can plug that urine tube in so you can pee just like normal. Yeah, I mean, really, it's like, hey, you need an extension cord because you can't plug your stuff into the wall. Well, okay, you got to put it somewhere where it can be closer to the wall. So you got to have to put your kidney somewhere close to that artery vein and that bladder, that hookup. Absolutely. All right. These days, kidney transplants, are they common? I mean, it sounds to me like we've been doing this for a long time. We've really perfected the technique. People like yourself have this unique, incredible skill to be able to provide that sort of service to do the surgical hookup, shall we call it. Are we really good at it? Have we mastered this? We're not in the beginning phases. I wouldn't say we've mastered because I think by the time that we master, hopefully we won't need to do transplants anymore. And when that day will happen, um, your guess is probably better than mine. But this isn't a new thing. The initial, the first kidney transplant was done in 1959. And the first kidney transplant in Hawaii was done in 1969. 
so it's been it's been done for quite a few years and while i think saying mastery of is maybe overstating we are pretty pretty good at it so the actual surgical procedure we've we do well with that the rates of complications for the recipient are pretty low they are they'll never be zero because our knowledge is will our knowledge will never be perfect but the rates of putting in a kidney today and it just not working and having to be taken out tomorrow are down to somewhere between 1 to 3%. So what about the donors? How what is the process for a donor? So two types of donors, living donor and deceased donor, and a deceased donor is unfortunately exactly what it sounds like. Somebody has died, either car crash, gunshot, some sort of tragedy where that patient has died, and yet through the generosity of the patient and their family, sometimes we're able to recover those organs and use them to transplant our patients in need. And unfortunately in that situation, we are waiting for tragedy in order to try and support our patients and and what? All right. So that's unfortunately one of the types of donors would be deceased donors. And when we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk about living donors as that is something that we definitely need more of. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Kai Yamaguchi. He is a Queens transplant surgeon and expert. And we're talking today about kidney and pancreas transplants. When we come back, we're going to talk about that whole process of being a living donor and why we need you. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Shamanad University, Inter-Island Solar Supply, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, joined by Dr. Kai Yamaguchi. He is an expert in doing kidney and pancreas transplants. And today, I'm learning a lot more about what it is that we can do as individuals to really help to promote the idea of trying to keep people's kidneys healthy and happy, and also, if necessary, replace them when needed. So we just talked about two different types of donors, deceased donors and living donors. And we mentioned that deceased donors, really, there is an age limit of which if you have someone who has deceased, we wouldn't necessarily want to take their kidney to put it in someone who's younger. So when we talk about deceased donors, we really are talking about sort of tragedy of the young who no longer are with us, and yet we need their organ to do some type of transplant. Is there an age limit for deceased donors? There's no concrete age limit, but every deceased donor kidney is given a kidney score. We call the KDPI, or Kidney Donor Profile Index. And that's a number which is determined by using some of the the demographics of the patient in terms of age, et cetera, and maybe some and some of the other medical problems in order to get an estimate of risk of that kidney. And the higher the KDPI, the the more risky or the less long we think that kidney is going to last. And so while there is no concrete age limit, with higher age in general comes other medical problems, and in general the KDPI then rises. So we want to get a low KDPI. Correct. So let's talk about living donors. Living donors would be people who either are relatives or in some cases not relatives, and they decide to donate a kidney to someone in need. What are some of the different types of living donor arrangements that you have seen in your practice? 
in the past and historically, it was very much a family-to-family member process. And as we in the transplant profession have become more experienced and become better at it, it doesn't necessarily need to be anybody who's related to you at all. And it just needs to be somebody who is otherwise healthy without measurable and known risks to their own kidney function for the future. And interestingly, nowadays, you don't even have to necessarily match your recipient through what are called paired donor exchange programs. So when you describe that possibility of the match, can you tell us a little more what that means? Because a lot of people think you have to match the blood type, you have to match these other types of antigens or or these other types of things that could be inherent to you that are different than me. There might be genetic variations, but how far have we gotten with the idea of transplant that makes some of those things no longer a primary reason not to? So the organ that's placed within the recipient's body does have to match. And there are ways around that. And there are what we call desensitization protocols But for a large part, the organ that we place within a a recipient's body does have to match the blood type, at least being a compatible, if not necessarily identical, blood type, and then match some of the antigens uh, exactly as you were describing. But with paired donor exchange, if we have a donor and recipient pair that don't match, what we can do is through a national program, and the largest one and the one that we are part of is called the National Kidney Registry, we have the patient in Hawaii donate a kidney, and that kidney doesn't go directly into their recipient, but usually will travel to the mainland and start what we call a kidney chain. And several kidneys later, a kidney will come back to Hawaii to transplant that recipient. And so all of those patients get high-quality living donor transplants. Is there a time frame when we talk about sending a kidney somewhere? You know, I think of these long flights to the mainland, and I don't like to be sitting there as a, as a human being, let alone uh, having to get there really quickly because of the viability of an organ. What is the time frame from which if you took a kidney out of a living donor right now and they were participating in this type of chain donation, how long do you got? The kidney can last anywhere. It's a very gray number, and... It's very. It's dependent on a lot of factors, including the quality of the donor, but easily 24, if not 36 hours outside of the body. All right. So we've got plenty of time. You can even get it to the East Coast in that amount of time. Absolutely. Get it inserted into the recipient and start this whole process. Now, we've got some unique genetic situations here in the islands and, and wonderful genetic mixes of people that are a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And some of those genetic tendencies result in unique properties of some of our potential recipients or those who need kidneys. Are they more likely to find a donor locally or is that not even an issue anymore because people can travel in lots of places and there may not be that same antigen need based on genetics or where are we at with that? A local population always has differences to to any other local population and given that the likelihood of similarities is there as well. And so for the easy-to-transplant patient who doesn't have a lot of what we call sensitizing antibodies circulating around in their blood, the local donor pool is likely to match. Unfortunately, once patients have had 
sensitizing events, what's made their body develop antibodies against other human things, such as a potential transplant, unfortunately, it takes out a lot of the potential donor pool because of those antibodies. So what are sensitizing events? Things like blood transfusions? Blood transfusions, pregnancy, organ transplantation if if they're a retransplant candidate, and oftentimes autoimmune disease and critical illness can also increase those antibodies. They wouldn't be increased just by diabetes or high blood pressure. There'd be some other element to that. Right, right. And you just alluded to something that I find is interesting and noteworthy to to repeat. You could actually have a kidney transplant, be a recipient, and then after a certain period of time, it doesn't work. So you you stand in line and potentially get another one. Yes, you can. You can. Do you put it in the same place or nearby? Well, nicely in the design of the body, we have two pretty sim- pretty similar, pretty easy spots to place it, one in the right pelvis and one in the left pelvis. So if you're left, if you got one in the left and it doesn't go well, then you could put one in the right. Do we see more primary transplants rather than secondary or, or recurrent transplants? We definitely do see more primary transplants, but as transplant gains more time, as there are more patients who have transplants. And early on in the field, we were transplanting younger patients, healthier patients than we are necessarily now. And so it is not rare to see a redo transplant coming through. Now, how long in general, in the best of all scenarios, does a kidney transplant last? If somebody has a transplanted kidney, could they live regular lifespan with that if it continues to work? They can live a regular lifespan, uh, certainly depending on the age of the recipient at time of transplantation. And it's awfully difficult to give an accurate answer as to how long a kidney will last now because those data come out 15, 20 years from now. In studies that came out looking at historic transplants, we were then looking at somewhere between 10 to 15 years where half of those kidneys were still going, half of them had failed. Now, a little bit of skewed data because many of those kidneys that failed were functioning when they failed, but they're considered failed kidney transplants because a patient passed away from another cause. And so somewhere giving a rough estimate of around 15 to 20 years for a high-quality living donor transplant. Now, we need to get more living donors. And you mentioned that we just happened to have a non-directed donor here in the islands recently. We did. It was a gentleman who came forward who had, through his personal relationships and work, had met a lady who'd given a kidney and became very interested. And so he wanted to give a kidney to best benefit the population as a whole. And he didn't have a relative or a friend with kidney failure. And so he contacted the transplant center and through the National Kidney Registry, we were able to start a kidney chain with this non-directed donor. And through this, we know that there will also be one of our own Hawaii patients who will get a kidney transplant and get a high quality living donor transplant from this the timing of that is just a little bit uncertain because it'll be whenever a chain comes back to us. 
All right, we put that out there. We're waiting for the boomerang effect to come right back here to the islands. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about pancreas transplants and what are some of the other unique, exciting things that are up and coming in the transplant world. I'm here with Dr. Kai Yamaguchi. We'll be right back. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ulupono Initiative, Impact Hub Honolulu Co-working, and iDoctors Hawaii. What I really love to do is binge listen to programs that I can't catch because I'm working or busy running errands. So I'll come home and I'll listen to Radio Lab podcasts for hours. Binge listening to Hawaii Public Radio is my guilty pleasure. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Ekahi Ornish Lifestyle Medicine, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Kai Yamaguchi. He is a transplant surgeon at Queens Medical Center. And today we've been talking about kidney transplants, and there's another organ I want to touch on today, and that is pancreas. Now, we know what the kidney does. It acts as a filter, and you had that great analogy of the Brita water filter. What does the pancreas do? The pancreas has two functions in our body one of which is to help with digestion. But when we're talking about pancreas transplant and we're talking about diabetes, the pancreas functions to regulate our blood sugars both up and down. So the pancreas produces insulin and it also is involved in making sure that our blood sugar stays at a fairly steady rate despite all our differences in what we eat throughout the day. Correct. So when the pancreas doesn't work, diabetes can ensue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could other types of medical conditions affect the pancreas, like blood pressure, like it does with the kidney? Less so than the kidney. It can, but less so. And what about other sorts of lifestyle things, like alcohol or other sorts of things that people might do that could potentially affect their function of their pancreas? Does that have any consequences, too? Chronic alcoholism can certainly cause chronic pancreatitis, and that inflammation and irritation of the pancreas, while one of the primary aspects of that is more the digestive aspect of the pancreas, it, it will absolutely affect the insulin-producing aspect as well. And is it that aspect that you do the pancreas transplant for? We do. We don't transplant a pancreas for the digestive aspect because there are readily available oral enzyme supplements that can do a pretty reasonable job at replacing that. So we're looking at pancreas transplants for people who have diabetes. Are we looking at those for type 1 or type 2 diabetes or both? We're looking primarily at type 1 diabetics. There is a subset of type 2 diabetics that could benefit from a pancreas transplant, but a majority of the type 2 diabetics end up having uh, too much what we call insulin resistance for the pancreas to really overcome. So in type 2 diabetes, it's the, the pancreas might be doing what it can, but because the body is resistant to the insulin, it just can't keep up. In type 1 diabetes, you have a situation where the pancreas doesn't make any insulin. 
Correct. And so giving someone that ability to have insulin because of a pancreas transplant, they may not be resistant. So they may require much less insulin than someone who has the resistant situation. Right. So how successful are we with pancreas transplants? It sounds like we're doing really well with kidney transplants. How good are we medically with pancreas transplants? There's been some conflicting data about pancreas transplantation, and there have been both some very big proponents and very big opponents of pancreas transplantation in the transplant world. And various studies have looked and looking at retrospective social studies review. Social Security reviews have shown that patients actually will live longer just managing their blood sugars on their own. Now, in the situation, however, where we have a type 1 diabetic who also has evidence of kidney dysfunction, that patient is the one that nobody has any arguments will benefit from, in this case, a combined kidney pancreas transplant. So you do them at the same time? You do. Well, that sounds like it's a very long surgery. Uh, It can be a little bit long. What's a little bit long for a surgeon? So it depends on how favorable and how quick the patient's anatomy is, but usually somewhere between four to six hours. Wow, that's a long time for you to be doing surgery. I give you a lot of credit for that. So when you do it and you do the kidney pancreas transplant, you are putting in a pancreas. Where does that go? We put a pancreas in a very similar location to the kidney and we hook it up a little bit higher on the blood vessels to have a little bit um, a little bit of a higher blood flow. And then despite the fact that we are transplanting the pancreas for the blood sugar aspects, we don't really get it without the digestive aspects. And so we hook up the pancreas back to the intestines um, where it was in the donor. So it's kind of going to be closer to where the pancreas that isn't working is. A little bit. The pancreas in our bodies natively sort of goes across, like a little tadpole going across the middle. And in general, for a pancreas transplant, we hook the tadpole going up and down instead. Oh, so we're vertical Yep. with our pancreas transplant. And when we do that, what is the success rate of our type 1 diabetics? Do they ever get off of all their insulin? Or is this something where their doses decrease? Or is there some other benefit that makes it so advantageous in the kidney population? So the the outcome, the goal of pancreas transplantation is insulin independence. So and you go from doing a bunch of shots to not needing any shots. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic. Okay. Uh, it, it was a very... One of my more powerful memories as a surgeon when one of my early pancreas transplant patients came to me crying in clinic, and I presumed that there was something wrong when she was actually crying because she was so happy because she hadn't eaten a candy bar in a decade. And she could eat one now. She was eating a candy bar, and her blood sugar stayed exactly the same. Yeah, I want a candy bar now that you mentioned it, but okay. So so when you were able to do this, you really helped to have the pancreas be able to resume the function, produce the insulin, so that the body can respond to a more normal situation with the sugar. Yep, exactly. The idea being balance your blood sugar, you won't have the complications of some of the very commonly known things that happen specifically to type 1 diabetics. They tend to have a more severe level of complication than some of the type 2 for some things, certainly not for everything. They do. And if we transplant just a kidney into a diabetic patient, unless they have very meticulous blood sugar control, the same challenges to that new kidney are going to occur or to the old kidney are going to occur to the new kidney. 
And in the situation of a type 1 diabetic, when we can provide a kidney as well as a pancreas, we can really minimize that risk of progressive diabetic kidney disease in that new kidney transplant. And you can revolutionize pretty much the rest of their lives, essentially. The patients focus a little bit more honestly on the insulin independence and not having to inject themselves with insulin. But what really makes their lives longer is good, solid kidney filtering and function. It's that magical combination. We are going to have to talk again because this has been absolutely fascinating to think about that combination of those two really critical organs in transplanting. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Kai Yamaguchi is a transplant surgeon at Queens Medical Center. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show, or you can find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week when we talk more about health topics. I'm always learning something new and happy to know we're doing it right here in the islands. We will be here on Monday on The Body Show. We'll see you then.